Hey guys, it's John Carl. Before we start the show, I want to tell you about a brand new podcast from ABC News. It's called Uncomfortable by Amna Nawaz. Each episode, she sits down to talk about the issues that divide us as Americans by confronting them head on with an unflinching one-on-one conversation. Just search for Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcast. There's a little sneak peek up there now, and we've got the first full show coming next Tuesday. Again, that's Uncomfortable. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC's Congressional Correspondent Mary Bruce. That's right. Mary Bruce instead of Rick Klein. This is a new day at Powerhouse <laughs> Politics. Klein claims he will be back uh, next week, but I am, uh, I'm thrilled to have my, uh, my counterpart on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue because we've got a lot to talk about, Mary. Rick who? There's <laughs> exactly. a lot going on up here. Exactly. <laughs> So uh, you're going to tell us what's actually going to happen um, with uh, Obamacare and with the budget and with, uh, you know, of course, the uh, the, the Russia investigation. Uh, but first, we had we had news overnight and into the morning. The travel ban 2.0 shot down yet again, or at least blocked. Uh, 2.0 uh, going the way of, of 1.0. And, and, and the interesting thing with this is you know as 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 we were reporting uh this travel ban 2.0 was done so that it could withstand legal challenge it was to 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 all the chaos and the way the first one was put together this one had the had the lawyers in the white house counsel's office uh the lawyers at the justice department very carefully crafted to be well within the president's legal authority and the, if you look at the at at the judge's decision in Hawaii and the judge's decision in Maryland, they are citing not the language of the new order, but what senior White House officials have been saying about it. That's what's so interesting about this. I mean, when you get down to the heart of it, it's the president's own words in many cases that are coming back against him. That's what's being used uh, in a lot of these instances to raise questions about this. It's, you know, the legality of this being fought based on what President Trump and especially what candidate Trump said uh, about what he intended this ban to really be. Right. So there. So so the argument uh, that, that plaintiffs made and the judge agreed with is don't just look at the words of the executive order itself, but look at what Trump and his senior people said about it. And there's a very specific quote that comes up in both of these orders. Uh, Both of these judges mention Stephen Miller coming out after Travel Ban 2.0 was was signed and saying that the intent is to just make a few technical uh, fixes, but to have essentially the same policy. And, you know, that means... If he didn't like one and he thought there was a reason for legal challenge, well, this is just the same thing. And that's what these judges said. But I've got to tell you, Mary, in, in, in covering this, when they finally came out with Travel Ban 2.0, what I was told is that everybody was on board with tearing down the first one and replacing it with this more carefully crafted and narrower second version. But Trump... Trump did not want to rescind his first order. He thought it was well within his power. He thought the lawyers at Justice and in the counsel's office were wrong. And he said, OK, I'm going to go along with it. I'm going to go along with it uh, because you are 
the legal team I have put in place, but I think you're wrong. I think we should fight this in court. And now this one gets blocked. I think you have a, a very upset president about this. I would say that that's probably a bit of a, a, a an understatement there. I mean, if this is something that he obviously feels so passionately about, and now the second one, the watered-down version, as they say, getting struck down too, where does this go from here? Well, you know, they're saying they're going to fight it to the court, but when you saw the president in Nashville himself calling it <laughs> a watered-down version, by the way, this is something he signed. Um, yeah. uh, you know, it, it means once again it's going to be that the first one's going to be tied to the second. But I think once you get to fighting this on the merits, most of, you know, I, I mean, my sense talking to the legal experts on this is that the White House may well ultimately prevail on the substance of this. Uh, but, you know, th- th- this might not hit the Supreme Court if it goes all the way to the Supreme Court until the fall. But enough with the legal stuff. We've got, I mean, Mary, you're, you're up there on the hill. So tell me, we saw James Comey up there yesterday, and then we saw this extraordinary uh, joint press conference between uh, Nunes and Schiff, the, uh, the, the Republican and Democratic uh, leaders of the House Intelligence Committee, who are usually at odds, yeah. but held that joint press conference. And Nunes made an extraordinary statement. Yes, standing side by side, making clear they agree on one thing. They have seen no evidence, they say, no evidence that there was any uh, no proof, no evidence of any wiretapping by the Obama administration of President Trump of Trump Tower. And it comes as everyone up here is asking the same question. Where is the proof? And you mentioned Comey. The FBI director, he's now regular up here. He was up here yesterday summoned for the second time in two weeks to have yet another classified closed-door briefing with key lawmakers as they try to unravel this. Now, remember, John, as you know all too well, the president in the White House, excuse me, Sean Spicer, earlier this week says they feel they will be vindicated, that that the president will be proven right in all of these tweets that he put out. Uh, insisting that there was this wiretapping. Now they're trying to move the goalposts, as you know, a little bit on what, you know, whether wiretapping's really wiretapping. They are now suggesting that it may mean broader surveillance. But the overall sentiment up here in Capitol Hill is one of just huge frustration. They want the president and the White House to come out and say, you know, what was he talking about? What, where's the proof? Where's the link? Where was the basis for this claim? And you see people like Lindsey Graham you know, really up in the ante. He said yesterday, if they don't, if the FBI doesn't start providing some answers, the S word is getting thrown around, subpoena, that they could try to compel somehow this evidence to come forward. Now, we've seen some progress. Uh, The FBI did tell uh, Senator Graham yesterday that they would, uh, you know, respond to their requests for any documents related to any potential wiretapping. But they said that they would do that in a classified manner. Folks up here on Capitol Hill want answers. They want answers to come out publicly. They're sick of all these classified briefings. They want to get this all out in the open. And they're hoping that that will happen in some way, shape or form on Monday, because that's when Comey will be back up here testifying in public on the record at a hearing. So what is that hearing on Monday? The question is, is what kind of answers we get out of that, right? Like the Comey will be sitting here. He will be having to answer uh, some questions from the House Intelligence Committee. But just how far he will go, whether we will hear uh, if there is or is not concrete evidence from his point of view uh, remains to be seen. But, but so but, far. But what is what is the subject of the hearing? What What is the hearing? This is, this is the House Intelligence. He'll be coming up speaking before the House Intelligence Committee and be being asked a lot of these questions that everyone up here that all of us have been asking, and, uh, that certainly everyone has been asking, and I, I suspect in a classified manner in all these closed-door briefings as well. And, and, and it's, it, it will be fascinating because if he does not give the answer, 
it's going to inflame even even some of the Republicans that have been demanding the answers, the, the, the Lindsey Grahams of the world. And if he does give an answer, I mean, the expectation, I, I would assume, isn't it, mm-hmm. that the answer is there is no evidence? And if he says there is no evidence, then you have the FBI director basically saying that the president, his boss, the president of the United States, made an unsubstantiated, explosive, inflammatory charge against the previous president of you committing be, a crime? Don't want to be in Comey's seat on Monday. It's a tough. <laughs> it's a really <laughs> tough spot for him to be in. Um, and I think you know, you look at at sort of the run up to this. You know, I mentioned moving the goalposts a little bit. You heard, you know, Kellyanne Conway coming out uh, earlier in the week and suggesting, well, you know, we weren't just talking about it. it's not just wiretapping; it's surveillance in general. You heard the president himself uh, su- suggest that in an interview yesterday. And so it'll be interesting to see not just how Comey responds to questions, you know, about any direct actual wiretapping as the president claimed occurred in his tweets, but also surveillance more general. And a lot of people are are curious to know whether the FBI is going to launch a criminal investigation into Russia's meddling as well. There's that factor, too. Fascinating. So we're going to be joined here in just a, just a minute or so by Eric Cantor, the former majority leader in the House who lost in that primary uh, three years ago to Dave Bratt, who now is helping lead the charge against this Republican health care bill, uh, uh, leading a charge against it from the right. Uh, so I'm I'm very curious to see how, how Cantor, who dealt with a lot of, um, uh, you know, very conservative guy himself, yeah. but, but who dealt with uh, rebellions from the very same group that is now posing a challenge to Paul Ryan, uh, what he thinks about where where healthcare is is going, but what's your sense, Mary? Is it is it uh, is it going to pass? Are the oh, Republicans man. actually going to pull this off? Are they going to get the Freedom Caucus in line? It's really tough to see how they get this rebellion uh, in in some kind of you know contained somehow to let this thing get through. I mean, and remember, it's not this this bill is under siege from multiple sides, right? It's not just that you have the conservatives who are saying that that this doesn't go far enough, right? They claim this is not a full repeal. They want more. This bill is certainly you know just not up to snuff. But then you also have the moderates uh, who also oppose this. There's, you know, you've got your your Susan Collins, you have people who are saying that this, you know, doesn't that the cuts to Medicaid are too damaging, that they simply can't support it. And that's going to become an even bigger issue if and when this gets over onto the Senate side. But you just you look at this thing in totality and the numbers just don't add up. I mean, they're they're trying. I was just a, a yet the numbers another, in terms of the votes. The number in terms of the votes. Yes, 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 yes. Not not the CBO score numbers. So, so do you do you do you think it is the problem? Is the problem in the Senate, or do you think there's also going to be a problem getting this thing out of the House? I mean, obviously the votes aren't there yet, but you know how the House goes. You always get to crisis mode, and they find the votes, and they somehow pull it off. I mean, not always, but... Uh, the Speaker seems to still be optimistic, uh, but it is... Is Mary like, Bruce optimistic? I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm not making a value judgment on, 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 the, on the bill itself, but 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 do, do you think... Yeah. Um, I'm putting you on the spot, and I'll tell tough. you why, it's, Mary. It's, Let me give you. It's really, before, it's, it's really tough, quite okay. frankly. And the reason why I'm putting you on the spot is that Rick and I have had an ongoing debate over this, and I have been. I've heard this. I have been more bullish on the possibility that Republicans find a way to do this. I think at one point I had it at about a 43 percent chance of, of of this Obamacare repeal and replace uh, getting passed. Uh, Rick was down at about 15 percent. I, I would think say. I think Ooh, that's 15% 15%. of passing the House. You might wow. be down to 5% of passing, being signed into law. I'm somewhere Where, between the two of you. Oh, and, that's and, a cop-out. No, but here's why. Here's why. 
is because I do think it's interesting that you've seen this shift even in the last like mm, 24 hours, right? Last week, it was Paul Ryan out here with his shirt sleeves rolled up saying it's basically this or nothing, right? This is your best chance, guys. Republicans get on board. Even if you have some questions, some, you know, things that you oppose, he says they'll deal with them them later, but it's you got to get if you want to get a repeal done, this is your chance. Look what he said in the last 24 hours. Now open he's saying changes. open to some changes, open to some necessary improvements and refinements. Um, so he's suggesting there's a little bit more wiggle room here because he, you know, quite frankly, he's got to be if he wants to get this through. And, and there's also, a Wheeler dealer in the White House who is telling those exactly. Freedom Caucus guys, I'm listening to you. Yep. I'm open to your suggestions. I hear your concerns. Uh, the the, the, the uh, traditional leadership style in the House is we're the leaders. You guys get in line. Yeah. Trump's taking a different approach. But. You know, I mean, you know this. The problem is, as you make the changes to appease those guys, you Dude, lose exactly. the moderates. Where where are you going to wiggle and how much are you going to wiggle? And there are still moderates left, right, Mary? Yes. I mean, you've got – and in the House as well, you have your Charlie Dents of the world. You, you, have, yeah. you have people in the House that are, that are less noisy uh, than, than the, the Freedom Caucus guys. They're not running a cable every five minutes, but uh, – uh, but but you know you you could you could run into a problem even passing the house if you move this bill too far to the right. So oh, yeah. I don't know. They're they're stuck and and things are getting a little bit squishy. And remember they set up a timeline for themselves. Originally they were going to have this bill on the floor next week. And uh, now they're they're not really commenting on that. And over on the Senate side they promised this would get done you know by the spring by the end of next month. Uh, I don't know how that's going to happen. So you know there's still hope up here. On the House side, um, but they've got a lot of work to do. A lot. No doubt. All right. Well, Mary Bruce, thank you for joining us here, filling in for uh, for Rick Klein. Uh, let's, let's, let's do this again soon. Now we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Eric Cantor, the former House Majority Leader, tells us what he thinks is going to happen up there. Hey, it's Rebecca Jarvis, and I wanted to tell you about my podcast, No Limits. We bring you a new guest with a new story every Tuesday. We're talking to trailblazing women across a variety of industries to hear about how they've built success and carved a unique path. Again, the podcast is No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Just search No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis and subscribe today. All right, and joining us now is the former House Majority Leader, Eric Cantor. Congressman Cantor, thank you for joining us. Uh, Pleasure to be with you. Okay, so you were House Majority Leader during a particularly, uh, should we call it raucous uh, period during during the House. You you were there through uh, showdowns over health care, shutdown, fiscal cliff, uh, debt ceiling crisis, all of that stuff. Now we have Republicans fully in charge, and obviously the big first test of President Trump is, is he going to be able to, uh, to get this, this health care repeal and replace of Obamacare through Congress? What, what, what's your read of this? This is some of the same people that – I mean literally the same people who, who, who gave you fits as leader uh, uh, challenging the Republican leadership once again, this time with a Republican in the White House. Right. I think that's the difference. You've got a Republican in the White House. And, you know, President Trump is going to have to own this health care bill. Uh, and it is going to have to become his health care bill in order to get this thing done. Uh, because I think you rightfully suggest that the dynamics that were in place prior 
still haven't changed all that much. What has changed, though, is obviously um, a Republican in the uh, White House, uh, which obviously, although equal in our Constitution and separate branches, one that I think many would call more equal because of the bully pulpit and just the gravitas um, that uh, the president brings to any kind of discussion on the Hill. Well, first, what's at stake here for Trump? This has well, been a, obviously a Paul Ryan show. Paul Ryan, uh, uh, this is this is this is he'll, his bill, and, and the, the White House has worked with him. The White House, but the, you get the sense that the president himself is now just getting engaged on this. But if this well, I, goes down, what does this mean for President Trump? I, it, it can't go down. I mean, that's that's just the bottom line, and that's why I think it will get done, and the president will engage and fully own this. Uh, short of that, it won't get done, in my opinion, and that's why it's so important. And and what I can look back to is in my experience uh, when I was in Congress and uh, President Bush was in office and the Republicans controlled House and Senate. Uh, I was at the time Chief Deputy Whip, and we did some really difficult things across the floor, whether it was the Central American Free Trade Agreement or it was uh, – uh, the Medicare Modernization Act for the Part D in, in terms of the uh, pharmaceutical benefits, uh, prescription drugs. Those were very heavy lifts, and they would not have happened uh, without the White House ownership and engagement fully on those issues. And, and, and do you, I mean, you, you, you see the back and forth between Trump and Ryan, and you've known Ryan obviously for a long time. Are, are these two really, really on the same page? I, I think at this Are they point, ever really going to be on the same page? Absolutely, because at this point, it is uh, uh, President Trump is the quarterback of of, of the team. Uh, he is the one that is ultimately calling the shots and will ultimately make the difference uh, for the Republican members uh, in terms of their political uh, uh, viability and their reelects. Uh, so. Uh, this will be um, a, a unified front in the end. Um, they will sink or swim together. Uh, and that's why I say there's really no, uh, there's no option to fail here because um, at this point the American people look at Washington being in control by Republicans across the board. And so there's no excuses in the eyes of the American voter. This has to get done. So how do you read the pot shots that Ryan personally and, and, and the bill – are are taking from what you would think would be the natural allies of this White House. I mean, for instance, Breitbart. Uh, Breitbart, of course, dropped that audio tape of 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 Paul Ryan in, in the heat of the Access Hollywood controversy, saying that he's not going to defend Donald Trump. I mean, it's it's, <laughs> it's an old tape, um, but it was the first time we had heard it, and it came just as Ryan is trying to make the case for this bill. That's Breitbart. Of course, the former head of Breitbart is sitting there in the Oval Office uh, with the president. I mean, what, how do you, how do you read that? Well, you know, listen, it's it's a tough business. Always has been. Uh, there are competing voices, opinions. Uh, at at the end of the day, this is Donald Trump's party now, uh, and um, you know the the efforts on the part of. Uh, you know, Paul Ryan and others to get this bill across the line are just the beginning. Uh, and at the end, it is President Trump and his presidency and his effectiveness um, are going to be tested on this particular bill. And that's why I think it will have to get done. Okay, so how does he do it? You, you, you see, you've got the, these, the, the Freedom Caucus, uh, the, the loudest voices in the, in the Freedom Caucus have come out strongly against this. I mean, and, and then you have the conservatives 
in in the in the Senate, not to mention a moderate problem as well. But uh, you know, I talked to uh, to Senator Tom Cotton, who told me that it's possible that this Republican repeal and replace bill would actually make it worse than what we have right now. I mean, those are fighting words. Make it worse than continuing with Obamacare as it is. Well, I mean, look, this this is all a process of negotiation. You know, President Trump has presented himself to the electorate and won on the fact that he's a good negotiator and can get people a better deal. And that's when that his prowess will have to come to work now. Um, obviously, there is a lot of objection being voiced in the House on the part of the Freedom Caucus and others. Uh, I think from what I'm hearing is the White House is willing to uh, work to amend the bill. And I think the Speaker has now acquiesced to that. Um, those changes uh, will occur in order to get to the requisite 218. Uh, and then the process is going to start all over again in the Senate. Uh, and uh, President Trump and his negotiating skills and presence uh, in the meeting uh, to compel members to support this measure um, is going to be critical. And at that point, once it passes the Senate, they'll obviously have to go into conference committee to reconcile the differences between the two houses. And that's why, again, the engagement of the White House fully, that Donald Trump owns this bill, it is his health care bill, uh, will ultimately make the difference. So is the key to cater to the Freedom Caucus on this? And, and if you do that, don't you... Don't you create a moderate problem? Look, you, you just got to think past the first step to the second and the third to get this thing done. Um, we, clearly, what what needs to be done in the House is a 218. That's always been the magic number. Uh, I'm sure the White House heavily engaged with leadership in the House to affect that end. And they will do what's necessary in order to get it across the goal line there. Uh, and then similarly, you've got to get to 51 in the Senate. Uh, and whatever needs to be done at that point will be done, and then will come the negotiations at the end uh, between the disparate factions, if you will, on the right and towards the moderates, and then Donald Trump will be the one to actually have to seal the deal. So uh, you say it has to pass. Right now the, the votes are not there, but you know that, that, that's, that's the way these things often uh, play out, obviously. But if it doesn't, getting back to the if it doesn't, what does it mean for the rest of Trump's agenda? And and what does it mean for Ryan and, 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 and Ryan's leadership? Look, this is a gateway issue. This has to get done because if they don't get health care done, then that doesn't bode very well for tax reform. And at that point, if tax reform doesn't get done, then what the administration can hang on to and what's left is just regulatory reform, which is obviously very powerful. That's That in and of itself has stirred the emotions uh, in the business community where I spend most of my time and people are much more optimistic about committing capital and creating jobs. But I, I disagree. I think that this will get done. It, it is that important because it opens up the route towards getting the next big thing done, which is tax reform. And what's your assessment on that? I mean, Ryan's pushing the border adjustment tax. You don't see that going anywhere, do you? Uh, clearly, when you have the business community divided on corporate tax reform, that's not a good place to be uh, because – um, there's enough resistance um, on on the part of the Democrats uh, in Congress, for sure, and some of their constituencies that don't want to see 
um, a lowering of rates to help business. You know, I've always been of the opinion, if you help business, you help the workers, because that's where the jobs are created. But again, very difficult, and that's why tax reform has not been done holistically since the 80s, 1986. So, um, you know, again, there'll, there'll be things to have to work out here on, on uh, the tax bill, for sure, pay-fors, which will can which can which could impact the ability to bring down the rates um, if there is going to be permanent tax reform. There's always the option to go the route that the Bush administration did and to uh, to affect temporary tax reform. Obviously, permanency and certainty is better. Uh, so that that uh, discussion, I'm sure, will ensue, but has to occur after healthcare is done, uh, because if they you know, if they were to start this before health care is done, um, then health care couldn't get done because you lose the privilege of the 51 vote threshold. So back to the, the question of border adjustment tax, does that survive? If, if tax reform is to happen, is that part of, of, of what happens? I think what has to have happen is there has to be some pay for um, in its place if BAT doesn't survive. Again, anytime you've got such vehemence and opposition uh, to a large component of tax reform, there has to be some resolution um, of those differences. How they work that out, uh, will it be a, 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 a immaterial exemption on smaller value goods, which again affects the amount of the pay for, so your rates couldn't come down as much, whether that is to happen. Um, you know, again, with the resistance in place, it, it looks very difficult to get BAT done holistically, but BAT represents a pay for for sure, and it also represents um, the the response to moving towards a territorial system in taxation. Because if we were to move in this country toward a territorial system, there is a concern um, that so much of the growth and engine in our economy is based on intellectual property, innovation, um, that that intellectual property may go overseas if we're in a strict territorial context. So the BAT tries to respond to that to provide some disincentive uh, to folks operating with patents overseas without paying taxes on the royalty stream. So again, there's a reason, I believe, that, that for substance as well as for the pay-for reason why BAT is being proposed, clearly the politics of it are more difficult. So, so what, what's your sense, looking at, at the, the bigger picture here? We're on the back nine of the, the president's first hundred days in office. What, 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 how's he doing? He's got to get these two. He's got to get these two items done. I mean, that's to me. Tax reform and Obamacare. He's got to get Obamacare uh, repeal replaced done and tax reform in order to get the grade. Um, I think that a lot of folks, certainly that I'm I'm speaking with around the equities markets, uh, business environment in general, are counting on. Uh, the success of these things, and obviously we see the equities markets, um, you know, exceeding and uh, exceedingly well in terms of valuations at this point. But I think so much of that is just directional. And if there is any indication that some of this is not going to happen, you know, I think there'll be a negative impact on the markets. Yeah, because my my sense is, I, I look the the. the the view in Washington is much more bearish on on even the Obamacare repeal and replace getting getting passed. I I tend to agree with you. I think that it has to happen. I, th- I see a president that's very engaged. I don't know exactly how he gets it done, but I think it would be a mistake to bet against President Trump on on, on getting getting the repeal and replace in some form passed, some form close to where it is. But on tax reform, 
frankly, I, I you know, I, I, what, what I wonder is if the markets are overestimating the prospects of tax reform actually happening. How much of what we've seen, this incredible run-up in the stock market, um, how much of that is, is, is based on an expectation that it's going to get done? And what well, happens I, if it doesn't? What happens to the markets if it doesn't? Well, I think that the sentiment um, uh, that I'm um, hearing and seeing is, is is connected to number one deregulation and the burdensome the burdensome headwinds that business has been facing over the last eight years under the Obama administration. A lot of the, a lot of which he can do uh, through, and has done through executive order, right? Right, uh, right, or he will do yes. uh, some of which has been announced, but he will do through the rulemaking process. Yep. So I think a lot of it is that, and, and a lot of it's directional in terms of tax reform. I mean, many people in the Washington realm would say, well, "We want comprehensive. We want international. We want all of it." Well, I, I'm not sure that the markets are counting on you know this the necessarily this move to territorial system holistically and deemed repatriation as a part of it. You know, I, I think just rates coming down, if, if that in the end is what happens and they can't get comprehensive done, which again, I, my money is still betting on comprehensive getting done, but if all they did were to bring rates down, that, that may be um, good enough to satisfy the markets because it's, it's, it's real simple. I mean, you lower the tax rates, it flows right to the bottom line, and a lot of these public companies, their earnings per share increases when they don't have as much of a tax liability. So I know you've got to go. There's so much more to talk about. So we're going to bring you back on the podcast uh, at, at, at some time down the road. But 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 two more things I want to ask you about. The first, uh, just quickly, this this uh, this, this uh, controversy over over Steve King yet again. I know you, you you dealt with some controversial statements that he made while you were in the Congress. How does how does Republican leadership make when uh, deal with a situation where, where you have a a member? who is making statements that are, quite frankly, sound a little bit, you know, I mean, maybe I'm being kind here even in saying at least sympathetic to white nationalism. Look, I, you know, I, when, when I was on the Hill as leader and as whip, I mean, I always practiced, um, you know, the, the standard of saying, look, we are held to a higher standard. When you are in elected office, you should try and strive towards maintaining some sense of decency and respect for diversity and for all people. Uh, and when, utter, when words are uttered in a way that could be offensive to people, I think it is incumbent upon leaders to stand up and, and make a stand. And, if, and what does that if, mean? To simply denounce what he said, which, which, which has by and large been done, or, or is there anything else that has to be done? Well, again, I think that you know people do look to to words. Words do matter, uh, and um, even in this day and age of the type of rhetoric that's being thrown about online and elsewhere, uh, I'd still think there is a expectation of decency and respect on the part of the American public. So yes, uh, to denounce uh, those kind of statements, uh, and then to to uh, you know again look towards policy solutions that reflect what the party and uh, those in leadership and rank and file are really about. Uh, and to be able to explain that in a way um, uh, through all the clutter and all the noise uh, in the media um, where the, the American electorate, I think, can understand that leadership um, does not only have the back of the electorate, but also understands and adheres to the founding principles um, of our country, which is the respect for the individual um, and for all of us. And, uh, I, you know, again, a lot of that gets lost today in some of the noise. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And then last thing I, I got to ask you before you go, uh, 
Where, where do you think we're going with the Russia investigation? Right now, obviously, it's the, the we have the investigations in the House and the Senate intel committees, but you've heard some calls from Republicans uh, like Lindsey Graham and certainly from from Democrats for something a bit more, maybe even a uh, you know special committee or special prosecutor. Where, where, where do you where do you see this uh, where do you see this Russia investigation going? Well, I've heard the president say that he will come forward with demonstrable evidence that will vindicate his statements and uh, about wiretapping of Trump Tower. Right, I think that's critical that that occur. I know that the committees in the House. You don't uh, think that's going to happen, do you? You don't think that there's actually evidence on that? Uh, again, I've heard him speak into the camera saying unequivocally that there will be demonstrable evidence um, to back up his statements. Again, I think many people look at that, and I, for one, say I, I, I'm in disbelief, but if that's the case, we'll see. Um, and so I think you initially we've got to take the president and at his word and see what he presents. He said he would do that. Now, if that is not forthcoming, then that raises other issues. But um, I do think that you give him the chance to do that. The committees, I'm sure, are hard at work at trying to uncover um, what they can. Uh, and, and then I think, you know, trying to sort of get back to the broader issue of, you know, this this. Uh, relationship, what, what uh, you know, this very unusual relationship between the United States and Russia, given its geopolitical import uh, in the Middle East, in Europe, you know, I think that should really be the focus. Um, you know, I have a lot of confidence in our intelligence agencies and our security agencies uh, to defend our country and the people who are there each and every day. And I think just from a policymaking standpoint, folks on the Hill would look towards where the relationship in the end needs to go, given the imperative of trying to stamp out you know, some of the uh, terrorist financing in Iran, uh, trying to settle the situation in Syria. You know, it's not so straightforward, because all of a sudden, if you, if you look to say, well, we're going to side with Russia in the fight against ISIS, all of a sudden that puts us in support of a regime in Syria Supported that is by Iran. proxy for Tehran. So it's it's not so straightforward. Yeah, no doubt. All right. Well, next time we'll bring you on and talk foreign policy. Uh, okay. <laughs> Eric Cantor, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Pleasure. All right. And that is it for this week's edition of Powerhouse Politics. We'll be back next week. And who knows, maybe Rick Klein will join us as well. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a review. Give us some of those stars. And send us a tweet, at John Carl, at Mary Bruce or at Rick Klein. Thank you for listening.